Before we get started, I would like to pay our respects to the traditional owners of the lands where this podcast was made. And we would also like to pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening. And we would like to acknowledge that this story names people who have died and describes settler violence in a way that could be upsetting and triggering for some people. It is not our intention to upset, but we intend to tell the truth. I'm Fazadraki. This is Days Like These. In this episode, reporter Bo Spiram is talking to musician Fred Leone. I remember walking up the carriage, like going with my brother or my sister, and looking out the window and just seeing all this bush flying past. 12-year-old Fred is on a train with his brothers and sisters, hurtling north through Queensland. It's a bit of an older train, and it's you know, really elegant. It sort of looks sort of old-fashioned a little bit. The smells were like wooden. You could smell wooden smells in the leather, the leather seating. Fred doesn't know it yet, but he's about to meet someone really special. A woman is going to tell him stories of some wild times. Stories about a king. Stories about escape. And stories about his family. Here's Bo. Fred Leone is a proud Brisbane Black, a hip-hop artist and a songman for his people. But way before he was making music, he was a little boy listening to his mum and auntie's yarning. When I was growing up, mum used to like to play cards, you know, karum on kunkan and that. And I'd sit around by the table a lot, listening to the old girls, all the old ladies, yarning and talking about who their mob is and where they're from and listening to my own aunties telling their stories and, and you know, hanging around too to try and get some money for, um, you know, 20 cents worth of mixed lollies to make a cup of tea. So, um, yeah, I, I learnt from a very young age to be able to listen. Fred's mum will tell stories about their family. Stories like how his grandfather, Nimrod, met his grandmother. My grandfather, when he was 16, he was with a group of older fellas and they they went out hunting and they there was a cow there, so they killed this cow and they were carving up the meat, carving up the cow. And while they were carving up the cow, a truck came along. Yeah, so he was standing there and he didn't run because he didn't think there was anything was bad was going to happen. There's, old truck was coming up the road and he's sitting on the fence whistling. This bloke's pulled up in the truck and said, hey boy, did you take that? And he's like, uh, you know, English was his third, fourth language. So he's sort of like, hey. And he just sort of, I don't know, ignored him. And then, uh, yeah, they grabbed him and, and took him. Fred's grandfather Nimrod was taken away from his family and community and put to work as a stockman. And he, he tried to get away and um, he got caught and they took him and sent him to a penal colony over, Aboriginal penal colony over on um, Palm Island. Fred's grandfather then escaped from Palm Island's he got caught and taken to Sherberg Mission as punishment. That's where he met Fred's grandma. Fred was learning about how his family was split up all over Queensland, a story that wasn't unique to his family, a story that is common to First Nations people across this continent. And that's the reason why Fred had never met any of his grandparents. When Fred was 12, his mum decided to go searching for their family. Yeah, so it was 1989 and... Uh... Mum 
mum had a pension card, none of Uriel had a pension card, and they said, oh, look, we got, we got these discounted tickets, so we, we can travel up. Let's, let's all take a little trip up and try and link back up with Pop and Nimrod with my grandfather's family. And um, they'd heard through the grapevine there was a lot of our family in uh, Mount Isa. So without knowing anybody up there, they bought tickets and we all jumped on the um, Spirit of Capricorn and uh, took a train ride up to Townsville and then from Townsville caught the Inlander all the way into Mount Isa. I remember walking up the carriage, like going with my brother or my sister, trying to walk along this carriage and looking out the window and just seeing all this bush flying past and going up and getting chocolate milk or whatever. And, you know, it seems like we were on that train for weeks or something. It was something really special. And, and to hear, you know, the excitement from Mum and Aunt Uriel and, and all of us, all the kids, excited about, you know, going up to see Papa Nimrod's country. Which, which Mount Isa isn't his country, my grandfather's country, but we were, you know, we were like, we're going up to see Papa Nimrod's country, we're going to see all their family. It was like a magical moment, you know, to be able to be just cruising along on a train with your family and having a ball, having the time of your life and not knowing what we were going to find or who we were going to see. And we got there, we were staying in a little place called Pamela Street Hostel, the Aboriginal hostel up there. We got there, we landed there, and then that afternoon, um, this old girl rocked up to the... This old lady rocked up to the to the um, hostel and said, hey, boy, where are you, where are you from? Come here. Uh, come here, jogger. Where are you from? And I said, hey, I'm, I'm from Brisbane. I'm from Brisbane, Adi, I, I was saying to her, and she said, uh, oh, where, and who, where's your mother from? Where's your mother and father from? I said, oh, mum, mum's, mum's from uh, Sherberg. She said, Sherberg? Oh, who's your grandfather? Who's your mother's father? And I said, oh, Nimrod. She said, oh, she started crying. She said, go and get your mother. I'm your grandmother. That's my big brother. And she started crying and I looked at her and I, and um, I ran off back into the hostel and grabbed mum and said, mum, there's a whole lady out here. She said she's Papa Nimrod's little sister. Mum's like, no, because we'd only just landed and nobody, we didn't know anybody except for all the names, you know, mum knew all the family names of all the uncles and aunties inside out. And um, so mum came out and said, hello, auntie, what's your name? I said, Jessie, I'm your thing. And mum started crying and said, oh, auntie, Jessie. And um, she said, I'm your your father's youngest sister. I'm the last one left. She's crying and mum's crying, auntie Uriel's crying. And she came in and then, yeah, we spent a couple of weeks up there in Mount Isa visiting all the family and going around and seeing everybody. And, um, yeah, yeah, it was really good. Nana Jessie was strong-headed, but just this cuddly old grey-haired granny. And she smelt like bunija. Bunija is um, tobacco, chewing tobacco mixed with ash from a fire. And so she, she always chewed that. And I, I remember that smell always... Ah, oh, yuck, man. I don't like that, Bunija. You know, she said, come here, we're past my tin of Bunija there. <laughs> yeah. What, what was really nice about it for me 
and probably for my siblings is we'd never met any of our grandparents, either side of our family, because they were all passed away. You know, it, to me, it was like, oh, I, I have a nan now. Like, I actually have a nana. Here she is, Nana Jessie. After the trip to Mount Isa, Nana Jessie came to live with Fred and his family in Brisbane. So I remember, you know, at Oxford Place, at the Black Housing House in Oxford Place, I remember being in the lounge room, so I was an old Queenslander, and being in the lounge room, laying down, with my head on her lap, and she's just stroking my head and singing, just singing these beautiful songs in language with no Western rhythm whatsoever, you know, like no no sort of um, Western influence whatsoever. Do you remember, like, the melody or, yeah, you know, like the tempo? Like, could you describe no, sort of the uh, rhythm? slow, sort of slow, and um, most of it had, like, a double beat, so like a like a heartbeat, you know, like that. And, yeah, just remember hearing her voice. It was old, it was rattly and shaky and old, but... When she sung, it was strong, you know. She she was strong for that moment in time and it, it just, every night, that's how she'd get us to sleep, you know. She'd go, you know, whoever was awake, one of my siblings would be awake, or myself, and that's how she'd put us to sleep, by singing mm. to us, singing and saying, this is your language, my boy, Joga, this is your language, I'm singing to you to let you know this is your from your family, your language from your family. You felt a warmth come over you, you know, when she was singing and, and just feeling, you could feel all your mob there, just all your ancestors there around, you know, and you sort of feel their embrace. From what I know now, as an adult, you know, some of it was Gujiga, some of it she was just singing sections of Gujiga. Gujiga is um, sections of our song line. That song line is from Garawa country in the Gulf. Nana Jessie told Fred that's where his family comes from. She told Fred about her dad, Fred's great-grandfather, and how he was a warrior known all across Gulf country. He was respected by blackfellas and feared by white people. Nana Jessie told me, she always said, oh, you know, he was a king, king of the Garo, Garo mob, she'd always say, um, king of Westmoreland. I just assumed, being a little kid, that, oh, okay, we have kings in our, in, in, in our culture, and he must have been one of those kings. His name was Garan Jamajin. He was also known as King Peter, and that old fella had seven wives. Nana Jesse always said, because of his stature, this is why he had so many wives, because of the, the fights that he fought and the battles that he'd had over time. And it was almost like a political play because that fella, that, that old fella there now, Gurunjamaji, old King Peter, my great-grandfather, the women that he married were all the daughters of head lawmen across the whole Gulf, the Carpentaria. And so there was this thing that bound all these tribes and clans together Garan Jamaji wasn't just a lucky fella, he was smart too. Marriage was a way of building relationships between neighbouring nations. It was basically old school social networking. It created alliances across huge expansions of country. And when white fellas came, these alliances were used to fight back. Nana Jessie told Fred about all of this, how Garan Jamaji 
and all the lawmen across the Gulf teamed up to hold the line against colonisation at a place called Hell's Gate. This is what Nana Jessie told me. She said, Hell's Gate is where we held off white whitefellas for 30 years. And she said, any time whitefellas wanted to move up into the territory and go and bring their cattle or whatever, the military would only bring them there and then they'd say, anyone who wants to go past Hell's Gate, you're on your own because the blacks are too wild. You're going to die. And we're just warning you, but if you want to take the risk and go in, you've got guns, you've got ammunition, you've got food, you've got, you know, cattle, whatever. Just be aware that you can you take the chance. This is It's on you by yourself because we've been here and we've fought for however many years and, it's you know, over that time, they just said, no, we don't escort anybody past this point. And so we held off Western civilization for 30 years at Hell's Gate, simply through warfare, guerrilla warfare. It was known as the wild times. Squatters and pastoralists were branching out to find new grazing land for cattle. Usually they were armed or had military escort. But as they were approaching what now is the Queensland side of Garawa country, they faced a fierce line of warriors. It was all out war, and the colonists were always looking for a way to gain ground. They would attack at dawn or when mob were in ceremony. One night, sitting around the lounge room, Nana Jesse told Fred and his siblings about a ceremony that Garan Jamaji was leading, where this happened. And I remember we were sitting around, um, me, Sam, Sino, Tilla, my little sister, and she's telling us, when that old man, he survived one big battle there. She said he was with all their mob, and they were having a big ceremony. There were hundreds of people from all over Gulf Country, men, women and children, all meeting by the river. And she said they were in the middle of the ceremony and then they heard cracks, crack, crack, the gunshots, you know, and they knew something was happening. So everybody started running and screaming and then suddenly... They were there, the men from the station house, from Wallagrain Station. The men from the station house opened fire on the ceremony. And everybody was running every which way, and old Peter got split up now. Old Garan Jamaji got split up from his wives. They all scattered left, right and centre. Once the men from the station were done, they left and the survivors were left to figure out who was injured, who had died, and who was taken. They had to literally go through the, the, the creek and pull out bodies and babies. She was describing babies. She said, you know, the little babies, done, they're done. Her grannies, some of my mother's uncles and aunties, you know, and all these children, young people, women, men. And in the horror of all that happening, Garan Jamaji noticed that um, they'd grabbed one of his wives. As soon as Garan Jamaji realised what had happened, he knew he had to move fast. While they were dealing with all that terror that had just happened, the men started getting ready. And my great-grandfather, Garan Jamaji, he couldn't wait because he knew that what was going to happen to my old nan, one of my old nans, when they got back to the station house, she was going to be raped and tortured probably and, and kept, you know, just kept there as a slave of some sort. Garan Jamaji didn't wait for backup. He set off straight away. Oh, Garan Jamaji, he went by himself and he had like a whole swag of spears, so 
pull together spears from trees along the way, young shoots of trees. So he just started tracking them. He followed them all the way back to where the station house is, you know, and he crept up. He came up and it was nighttime by the time he got there, so he crept up and she said he threw a rock to make that old fella come out and the old fella come out and he speared him, speared him in the thigh. Once he speared him, another man from the station pulled out his gun and shot Garen Jamajin. He hit him in the shoulder, but it wasn't fatal. While all that was happening and he was throwing spears at him, my old nana got away. After he freed his wife, the two of them returned for sorry business. I remember Nana Jessie and her saying, oh, they buried this baby here because that was this baby's country, you know, after the massacre happened. Probably when you think about massacres happening in Australia, you think of them as happening five, six, seven generations ago. But for Fred, his family, and a lot of mob in the Territory, this is recent history. So those babies that were buried were the same generation as Fred's grandmother, Nana Jessie, and his grandfather, Papa Nimrod. Nana Jessie told Fred how they mourned for people they lost. People would hit their head to bleed, and that was a way of mourning, you know, when the, when the wailing's crying and the, the scarring reminds them of that time and the, and the, and the pain and, and helping them to grieve those people that they lost. Nana Jessie told Fred that after that, Garen Jamaji moved to another part of Garawa country. He scared the shit out of station owners, so they come up with a plan to keep him off their backs. They gave him a king plate, you know, to try to rein in his um, defiance against the uh, Wade Willer. Wade Willer would say, white, white fella, Wade Willer. When she was explaining it to us, she would say, you know, they give him this king plate because they were scared of him, because he was a warrior, you know. They give him this thing to try and shut him up and, and keep him, you know, from killing them, killing all of them. A king plate was something that white people gave to identify a leader in a tribe or nation. They used it to try to undermine the importance of collective leadership in First Nations groups. And by giving king plates to Aboriginal people, they expected that they would toe the line. But Garen Jamaji wasn't about that life. Hearing that stuff, as a kid, it made you dream of, like, all these, you know, thinking this person was like Superman, like he's just... A, an amazing, you know, like just a warrior, couldn't be stopped. Even with all the battles he fought and all the massacres that he survived, he still made time to father 52 kids. In fact, it was the birth of a baby to one of his wives that would lead to Garan Jamaji's death. So one of my old grandmothers, she was pregnant and the baby came out and then the baby came out like visibly Asian. And so when they were in Westmoreland Station... The cook there was a, a Chinese cook and the only Chinese guy in hundreds and hundreds of kilometres. And my old nan said, oh, you know, he raped me. When Gary Jamaji heard this, he gathered a group of men. And so he went to Westmoreland Station. They called out to this cook, come out here, and communicated through the station owner that this fella broke the law and this, you know, pointed at the baby and said, this is what he did. The station owner had all his warriors on his doorstep and he looked at the cook. So he said, OK, well, just go out, you, you sort it out, it'll get sorted out and then you come back in and you go back to work. You're just going to, you're probably going to get injured. You might get a spear in you, but you'll be OK. You, you just do what they say, come back in. The cook came outside and was made to stand in a circle that Garen Jamaji drew on the ground. So what happens is all the warriors, all the men will line up 
and there could be like 50 to 100 of them. You know, however many are there, that's how many spears you have to face. And the idea is you stand in the circle, they'll give you one little shield, and this is punishment, right? This is law, how we do it in the territory, in that part of the territory in the Gulf. You can't move out of that circle, you can't move your feet, you can't move out of that circle. If you move out of the circle, that's their green light and their license to kill you without any question. And then my great-grandfather, old King Peter, my nan said he took 10 paces back and he turned around with his spear and he lets the spear go and it goes bang, dead into his heart and kills him instantly. He drops on the ground, he's dead. The station owner obviously gets upset and says, what have you done? You killed that cook. Karen Jamaji had done what he came to do. Justice was served and he went home. But the station master reported Garan Jamaji to the police. And then suddenly they hear word that the police are looking for him, bullmen are looking for him. Garan Jamaji went on the run. And Nan said, you know, they caught him a few times, but he always escaped. He was too clever for them. That old fella, he was an old clever fella. She would always say that. One of the times he got caught, his nephew, who was working with the white fellas, let him go. The more times he managed to escape, the more hell-bent on catching him they became. Eventually, they found him. They caught him and they had him backed in the bush, into a big bush, and um, he held his spear up and put a little white cloth on it to say, I'm coming out now, and he was waving the flag on the spear. And when they saw that, she said they just shot, shot in there and then till he'd come out, he crawled out, they grabbed him, she said they dragged him over, rolled him over, put the gun straight in his face and shot him in the head. And then she said, and that old man, you, my old father, she said, hey, darn, my old father, they buried him there, the gate, the front left pole at Westmoreland Station. She said they buried him upside down to show disrespect and they took his king plate and they buried him there at the next to that gate, the front left gate at Westmoreland, the old Westmoreland station. Nana Jessie was, she would get upset telling the story and even now when, you know, my cousins or family members talk about talk about that old fella or even my grandfather getting taken, they'll say, hey, darn, any Like that, it's just like, oh, poor fella. Like down here in South East Queensland, we say, oh, don't. But, yeah, if they say, hey, darn, any People always feel a sense of sadness around his ultimate demise and and why it happened. and But also uh, uh, always a, a sense of pride in that he fought like he fought for 30 years. After more than a year of having Nana Jessie stay, she went back home to Mount Isa, but she had filled Fred's head with all the stories of his old people. It was like a unfo- slow unfolding of this, um, or, or, or an un, uh, unfurling of a flower, you know, over time. The, to- the time that we spent with her, like, I just soaked it up. I, I just soaked everything up. Tell us that the feeling you get knowing you you know one of your old followers is you know a dead set 
sick warrior. You know, like a, a real solid, you know what yeah. I mean? Like defender of yeah. country. Yeah, like yeah, tell us that there. It's one of the reasons why when the offer came up to, you know, when the call was made to me on a Thursday night a few years back saying, you got to get up here. Um, Monday, well, ceremony's kicking off on the weekend. On Saturday, you need to come up. It was one of the reasons why I went because I knew the foundation of going through initiation and ceremony and law, what what it did and how it fortified my great-grandfather and my grandfather and every other generation back in back in time and to have that connection to them through that ceremony was something that will always hold close to my heart because it, it connects me to not only those stories but that law and that ceremony that they've seen and that, that's always been their part of the land. When Fred grew up, he went looking for more information about his great-grandfather and he found it. He read books that had stories of his great-grandfather in them. Some of them were stories that Nana Jesse had already told him. And there were some other ones too, about what a warrior he was and how he fought. Along with going through ceremony, Fred's learning his language and songline. 280 verses of the top side, Mumblia Kujiga. A song that stretches across 830 kilometres of Gulf country. It's the same song his Nana Jessie was singing all those years ago when she came to stay. And now he helps other mob to preserve their language too. In everything that Fred does, he carries the stories that he learned from his old people. This isn't even just a story of my one family. This is the story of every Aboriginal person that's alive today has this sort of story in their family. This story is the story of this whole country, like of every single blackfella. There's a there's a warrior in every one of our families that either survived all the, the wild times that were happening or or died in that process. All of our grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers were there having to fight to try to keep out the aggressor, the the enemy. That was Fred Leone speaking with reporter Bo Spiran. This episode was produced by Sarah McVie. Our executive producer is Sophie Townsend. Sound engineering by Isabella Tropiano. Original compositions are by Fred Leone. You can find more of Fred's music on Spotify at Fred Leone. And definitely check out his band, Yurinda. If you want to find more of reporter Bo's work, you can listen to his awesome podcast, Frontier War Stories. It's a podcast dedicated to truth-telling about a side of Australian history that has been left out of the history books. Special thanks to Karina Hogan and Kelly Williams. This episode was produced on Torrible, Yagara, Guppy Guppy and Wurundjeri countries. I'm Farza Draki, and I'll see you next time. Hey, what? You thought we were finished? Nah. Here's Fred singing a butler song from his grandmother's country called Yuangan, which means Jugong.
Your girl man gave one me, gave one me. And that's uh, Yohan Gunn.